Welcome again, everybody, to Marin Covenant Church. I'm Ben. I am one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, it is great. It is great to be with you. Um, you know, we just had an explorers class this last uh, this last hour, and we had a whole room full of people who are checking out our church, and uh, we shared how long we've been in our church. And I've been in our church for 18 years. Can you believe that? And uh, when I first came here, I came as the youth pastor. And shortly after I came, Jeff came for a second time. And Jeff, you know, is an incredible mentor and friend. Everything, like everything he does is perfect. Um, and it's incredible. Like you just learn so much from him. And spiritually, like that's a no-brainer. The other thing that as a young person I learned from him was how to play the credit card game. You hear about how he travels sometimes. And well, because he manages his credit card in an incredible way. Well, when I first came here and I first learned about this trick, I had little kids. And I'm like, well, there's no way I'm traveling with little kids. And I was too immature to realize I should probably use my credit card miles for something for our family like Costco money. Instead, I chose and used a, an REI credit card. And so when I spent all of my money and church's money and different things I had to spend money on, I put everything on this REI credit card. And once a year, I got a payday right? 800 bucks at REI once a year. And so I just got unlimited, incredible camping stuff. I mean, I love camping. I love backpacking. And once a year, I was just like, what new gizmos am I going to get? I had all of the coolest, greatest stuff for like two years. And then Katie figured it out and that, that ended that. But it was a glorious two years. But the reason why I say that is because I started getting super into backpacking and, the, and, the, and I love being outdoors. I love being in the wilderness. I wanted to keep like going, what's the next thing I can do? How can I make this harder? How can I make this more challenging? Can I spend a week out there? Can I go 70 miles? Well, finally, someone's like, hey, have you ever done this in the snow? And I'm like, no, I've never done this in the snow. I'm in. Well, the first thing you know, if you're going to go snow camping, it's totally different. Turns out living in Marin, having, you know, uh, hoodies and cotton socks are not going to pull the, are not going to get it, right? You're going to freeze. You're going, it's like zero degrees at night. And so, thankfully, I take my little REI money and I just start going to town, right? Turns out if you're gonna have a sleeping bag that's gonna like be in this cold, it's like four or $500. I'm like, that's too much. So then I had to find somebody who had that, right? But what you realize, if you're gonna live in the snow, the amount of money that it costs for the technology so that you don't die, it is bonkers, right? You need a sleeping bag, you need socks, you need pants, you need a special jacket, you need special food, you need a special tent, you need special everything. And, uh, and so I did that a couple times and, uh, and it was great. Uh, and then that was too rich for my blood. But what I realized is all of that technology is designed to do one thing, and that's to keep you alive, right? God made our human body to emit heat, right? To emit heat. And, uh, and then all of that technology, all the North Face genius tech is all designed to keep your body temperature all in your body. So when it's zero degrees outside, you're good to go. But what's wild is all that body temperature gets shared with nobody. Outside of your sleeping bag, outside of your clothes, it is zero degrees. And when I went camping, I was, you know, I'd sleep next to a friend of mine. We were camping together and you wake up in the morning and there's a, a layer of ice on the tent because all of the, your breathing, right, turn into ice in this tent because it's so cold. You're not cold. The room is still so cold. And I, I, I tell you that, that illustration because I think what's interesting is most of us, we recognize we want to be warm-hearted towards God. We recognize that we have the spiritual life that emits warmth, emits God's love and God's power and God's care. 
But we also recognize we live in a kind of a harsh environment. And so we end up, un, unbeknownst to us, we end up protecting our heat with all of these fancy things, with like certain rituals and rhythms and friends. And we just kind of, we create, we insulate ourselves because it's so hard to be a Christian, I think. It's so hard to be a Christian in this environment. It's so hard to be a Christian for the long haul. And so we have all these tricks to protect our heat and our warmth for the long haul. But what's interesting is that's, I don't think that's the way that God designed us to be. God didn't design us to be spiritually warm, all bundled up, staying next to someone else who's all spiritually warm, bundled up. God made us to share our body heat, to share our spiritual heat, right? And, uh, and so instead of going snow camping like, uh, like the North Face models, right, there's actually a way to do it, which is incredible, which every ancient people who's ever lived in the snow have done. They built igloos or some version of a snow shelter. And what's incredible is with a shovel and some time, right, you can create this cave that actually is designed to maximize your body heat. And so it could be up to negative 30 degrees outside and you could go into this igloo and you don't need all of this fancy clothes, all this expensive clothes. In fact, actually you need less of it and your body heat will actually change the environment of the igloo. So it could be negative 50 degrees outside and the igloo could be 30 degrees. If you add another person, it could end up being 40 or 50 degrees. Imagine being outside negative 20 or 50 degrees and inside simply by you sharing your body heat with somebody else who's sharing their body heat have made this oasis in the middle of a super challenging and awful environment has made this hospitable home. And I think at the end of the day, that's actually what we're talking about. And that's what we're gonna talk about today is this idea that we wanna be people who raise the spiritual temperature of every room we walk into. We don't want to be insulated, bundled up super Christians who are making sure we're just being protected and cared for at all costs. We want to be people who recognize we walk into a room and we actually change the environment that we're in. If we put our, our, our walk with God and we put it out there and let our spiritual warmth actually radiate out of us, the environments that we're in actually change. And instead of like being this Arctic frigid air that's all scary, we have this warmth of an igloo with us, with other people that we get to invite people into. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, is raising the spiritual temperature. How in the world do we become igloo people spiritually? That's how we're going to try to get there. And we're right in the middle, uh, rounding the corner, I guess, at the end of our, of our um, sermon series, going through our, um, our mission statement, right? We want to be people that engage with the spiritually hungry toward a life in Christ that's inspired, intelligent, and involved. And raising the spiritual temperature is basically about being involved. We're counting on you raising the spiritual temperature of yourself, right? Being inspired, being intelligent, being people who are wholehearted in your walk for God, that, the, that you just ooze God's goodness and grace. And what we're talking about today is that we just don't want to be too wrapped up in all of our North Face tech gear, but we want to be open-hearted with how God made us be, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to root ourselves this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to that. If you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, grab one in front of you, and uh, let's turn to Matthew together. If someone would yell out the page number, that'd be great. It's the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Those are the guys who tell the stories about who Jesus is, and Matthew is the first one of those. Matthew 5, do we have a page number for somebody? 968. 968. Okay, so here we are in Matthew, and... Relatively early in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, Jesus begins to do this incredible sermon, one of his most famous sermons called the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he's, he does the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, um, right? There's a whole Beatitudes that's really famous. He does these incredible teachings. Um, and this passage is found right at the beginning of this sermon. So that's where we find ourselves this morning, Matthew chapter 5. And he says this, you are the light of the world. Let me say that again. 
you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. Gosh, it's, such, it's funny. There's such a famous passage of scripture. I think it's so easy to like, just like skim over it, but we're gonna try to like slow down a little bit and just unpack it for a second here. I love that Jesus says, you are the light of the world. It's a statement about your being. He's not, go try to do this, go work hard to do this, but you in your very being are the light of the world. And he's hearkening back to the prophet Isaiah who told the people of God that they, they were their God's chosen people. They were God's chosen people and they were chosen for a purpose. And the prophet Isaiah says that they were chosen to be a light to the Gentiles, that the way in which they were gonna live in this dark and broken world, that they were gonna be God's chosen people who were gonna live out this holy and sanctified life and community and that that would be a testimony to the Gentiles. And you read throughout the Old Testament because humans are humans and you just saw the ways that they succeeded and the ways they failed. But Jesus hearkens back to that and says, you, if you're God's person, right? And for us Christians, if you put your faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives inside you, then you are God's person. You are the light of the world. And what's interesting is when we talk about being the light of the world, we all know the passages, there's passages in John where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And so it's kind of alarming, like, no, we are the light of the world. But Jesus, John says this about Jesus in John chapter one. He says this, in him, Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all of humanity. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's a really powerful statement because I know for many of us, I feel like I've had so many conversations this last month, this last six months, this last five years, forever, that the world is overwhelmingly broken and scary and devastating. And it just feels like a tsunami of evil and hatred is just around every corner. Like darkness is it. And it's true, that's how the world has been forever. But Christians believe that Jesus is the light of the world and darkness cannot overcome it. In fact, light impacts darkness, light changes darkness. Even the smallest candle changes darkness, let alone the light of the world, let alone you and I who are called to be the light of the world. And so when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, this is what he's saying. He said, you now are my people. Jesus was the light of the world. And then when he died and he rose again, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And they said, okay, so now whoever is my person, whoever is my follower, whoever is the Holy Spirit inside of them, you now are the light of the world. And let's be honest, we live in a dark and broken world. But instead of being scared about it, instead of being freaked out about it, instead of trying to fix things that we can't fix, we are supposed to engage this world like a candle and enters a dark room, the way a city shines in a dark mountaintop. The whole world gets to see it, right? So you are a city, I mean, you are the light of the world. And then he goes on to say, right, that you're a city on a hill. You don't like light a lamp. This is my paraphrase. I should probably read it. That's probably better. Right, so it says, neither do you light a lamp and you put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everybody. Right, the assumption is you're the light, you're made for purpose, so you don't just cover it up. You don't just put on your North Face gear and just hope for the best. Like you actually were encountered by God. God loves you, adopted you into his family for a purpose, to be put on a stand, to be a light to the whole world. And then he wraps up like this. 
So let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here's what's crazy. So what does that mean? You, you want to light, you light out. What does it mean to let your light shine and let your good deeds be seen? And when people see your good deeds, they're actually going to give glory to God. And so I, I read a bunch of commentaries. And I did a bunch of studying. And there's like, there like four like little subtle nuances about ways people interpreted that. One way is if you've given your life to Christ, the assumption is that the Holy Spirit is changing you, is transforming you, that you're becoming a new person, and that the people around you will see that you are a new being, a new creation, a new person. And by the testimony of your transformation, that gives God glory. You may not realize this uh, because Christians, for some reason, don't uh, lean on this fruit of the Spirit, but one of the main fruits of the Spirit is kindness. It's talked about in the fruit of the Spirit and the clothing of Christ. When you have all these different lists of what it means to be a godly person, kindness is actually one of the main things. Like, I always thought it was like shame, anger, you know, blowing people up on Facebook. Turns out, no, those aren't the things, but kindness is the thing. And this one uh, commentator said, kindness is God's secret weapon to soften hearts. Isn't that crazy? It's not your good arguments. It's not you're wagging your finger at somebody else. It's not blowing them up. It's not being self-righteous. But kindness towards other actually is like tilling the soil that makes the soil soft and open for the, what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Kindness. And then there's the, the traditional reading, which is, no, when you do good deeds, when you do the things of God, right? When you serve one another, when you care for the poor, when you care for the orphan, when you care for the widow, when you care for the marginalized, when you open up your home, when you put others before yourself, when you do those things, you are representing the values of God and the kingdom of God, and that gives him glory. And one of the, uh, one of the commentators says exactly what we're trying to say, which is, and when you do that with other Christians, the actual environment and culture changes. That Christians genuinely change culture, right? One Christian in a family system begins to change a family system. Two Christians in that family system begin to transform a family system. One or two Christians on a, you know, in a PTA changes an environment at a, at a school, right? These are things that Christians have done forever. And so when we actually go places together, we change the culture and that gives honor and glory to God. So we're gonna look at two things. I think those, when we think about what does it mean to have good deeds, it kind of gets summed up into two buckets, right? So one bucket is how do we let our light shine? We let our light shine by having personal righteousness. That's kind of one bucket. And the other bucket is this idea of public righteousness. And it's, so, it's such a bummer because when we think of personal righteousness, immediately it's like, don't drink and quit having sex with your girlfriend. And then you've arrived. And like, we just harper on that all the time. And so no one wants to talk about what it means to have public, I mean, personal righteousness. But personal righteousness is having a life that is transformed and tuned to the things of God. I mean, you guys have been around church long enough. What are the two greatest commandments? The first one is to love God. That's the second one. That's okay. Love God. The same ballpark, right? And the second one is to love thy neighbor, right? Love your neighbor. And what's incredible is, what does it mean to be righteous? Being righteous means to actually do that. When you love God and when you love other people, you actually unintentionally say yes and say no to a whole variety of things. And so what does it mean to, to have our light shine before all people and give God um, glory and to actually change the spiritual environment? Well, one of them is that we need to be people who have 
a personal righteousness that's just part of who we're being because we're connected to the vine and the Holy Spirit's having his way in us. And so if you, uh, in Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul, I think, talks about three different ways of what this public righteousness looks like. I mean, personal righteousness looks like. And what's wild is I think if, if Christians could just even do these three things, every room they walk into would be different forever. So here's the first one. Chapter 12, verse nine says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people in need and practice hospitality. I feel like that is like our church at our best. I feel like that's like retreat Marin Covenant Church. Like it's like, right? There's something about loving deeply. So that's the first thing. What does it mean to have personal righteousness? It means that we love our people deeply. We love our people deeply. We're devoted to one another. We honor one another. I mean, what a totally different thing if that when we're around the people that we love and we just intentionally love them and care for them, be devoted with them, to bear with them, to have dinner parties together and laugh and celebrate God's goodness and grace. Like Jeff talked about, right? celebrating gratitude and just, oh, God's so good, right? So what's one thing that we love deeply? I wish, this, I wish this chapter ended here, but this is where Paul turns a corner, makes it a little bit challenging. He says this, then he goes on and says this. So not only do we love deeply, we have to love hard people. He says, we bless those who persecute you. We bless and do not curse. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We mourn with those who mourn. We live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position and do not be conceited. It is really hard to love hard people. I mean, let's just be honest. And most of us have gotten really good at just carving out hard people because they're hard. But God has called us, his people, to be people who love hard people. We don't persecute those who persecute us. We actually mourn with those who mourn. We're like, oh, you're having a hard day, a hard week, a hard life. We don't go, oh, too hard for me and walk away. We jump in with both feet. We love hard people. We forgive hard people. You may not realize this because you've been a part of a church for a good long time and you're good Marine Covenant people, but did you know that people outside the church do not forgive? Like it's a thing, like nobody forgives. Like that is how the world works. Being a part of a church for so long, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me because people fight all the time. It turns out in the real world, when people fight, they just cut you out forever. Even mothers to sons, right? They cut you out, write you out of the will. It's a thing. What is so wild is I, uh, like I said, we've been here for 18 years. We've been a part of a little San Marin community for 15, no, for, yeah, for 15 years. We were plugged into this grouping of friends for 15 years. And over 15 years, every little friendship group has blown up because people do not know how to forgive. And so moms, right, got all mad about something or some kid didn't get invited to the third grade birthday party or whatever. And one by one, every grouping of these moms just cut the legs out of each other and they all found new friends and they keep rotating friends. And my wife, because my wife is so precious, but she loves hard people and she forgives. I mean, she has to be married to me, so she knows she's a good forgiver. She (laughs) forgives like nobody's business. And because she forgives like nobody's business, she has been in every hard conversation, in every hard, challenging friend group, in every life traumatic event for the last 15 years in this friend group because she has chosen 
to forgive. And people have said some brutal things and done brutal things and heartbreaking things. And I love that. I'm at least married to someone who's like, I'm going to lean into that. But that's it. We love our people well. We have to love our hard people even harder and well. And then it goes on to say this, and do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So far, so good. But then he says this, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. So not only do we love deeply, and not only do we love our enemies, I think we have to be people, if we're going to change the spiritual temperature of the room we're going to walk into, we have to realize it is not our job to be God's hammer of justice on people. And trust me, we want to be. Oh, it feels so good. And we can justify it in a million ways. God's righteous anger, God's mouthpiece, God's whatever. But the reality is, it is God's to fix it's God's to avenge. And how that's going to work, I have, honestly have no idea. I have no idea at the very end how God's going to make all wrongs right, how his justice system's going to work. I do know that he's perfectly loving. I know that he's perfectly just. And I do know that at some point, all the ways that I've been wronged, all the ways that I've been betrayed, all the ways that I want to drop God's hammer of justice on somebody, somehow God will take care of that. What is clear in scripture is it is my job to bless those who persecute me. It is my job to forgive those who have wronged me. It is my job to work for peace. And if Christians, instead of trying to be God's arbiter of justice or only be with people who that we like, we actually now will find ourselves in a bazillions of different rooms where we get to be God's people and bringing God's grace and mercy will change every room that we're in. Okay, here's the second point. Um, that, we, that if we're going to let our light shine, we also need public righteousness. Not only do we need personal righteousness, that we need to have these character that we show up in every room, that we actually have to do things. We actually have to have hands and feet. We have to put action to our faith. James has this totally brutal um, passage of scripture. And because it's God's word and because we want to take it seriously, like you kind of have to sit with it for a minute. And it's, it's hard. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, and does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Listen, that crushes me. And I'm a pastor for crying out loud. I mean, I can justify all the great things I do all day. One of the reasons I love the uh, ministry of City Impact and wanna, I want to make sure I'm there at least once a year, I want to make sure our church is there once a year, because every year I am confronted with my lack of maturity and my lack of faith as I step over meth heads and I'm like, oh, sorry for you. I don't know what to do with you. Well, it's probably the social reasons or whatever. Like I have a bazillion reasons why I just want to step over them and get to the thing and, and help. And every year God is like, this is my woman. This is my man. This is who I bless. This is who I care for. This is who I run after. And every year I need the reminder, and I need it more than once a year, but I for sure have a marker where once a year I recognize God's love and heart for the world is not for the easy, beautiful people. It is for the hard and challenging, broken, down and out people. That's who God blesses. And if we're going to be God's people, then our hands and feet have to be tuned 
towards those people. When you read through the, the prophets, the, the, you know, and Jesus does this to the Pharisees too, the time that feels like God just gets the most upset is when God's people are like, God, I love you. We're tight. And then just steamroll all the weakest and poorest people around. Boy, the prophets, they go off. Jesus goes off on the Pharisees. And uh, what I love in Micah, the most, you know, this famous passage in Micah chapter six, you know, the, the, the Jewish people are like, hey, we, you know, how many ox do we need to sacrifice? How many cows do we need to sacrifice? How much incense do we need to bring? And God's like, what are you talking about? If you want to know how to honor me, if you want to know how to be my people, then you do justice, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with me. And so if we are going to be people who are God's people, who are going to be a city on a hill, who are going to raise the spiritual temperature, then we also need to put our actual muscles and our hands and our feet to the things of God, to be where God is, to care for the people that God cares. What I love is, like I mentioned last week, we're all wired differently. And I'm so thankful for Pastor Roger and City Impact and that God picked him and said, you're going to go do this. And God is using him in incredible ways. And the truth is all of us need to find the place that God's put us in the body of Christ to use us. So I'm not saying that we're all going to go the tenderloin, but we do need to find where God has uniquely made us, uniquely called us. And people who actually do the thing that God's called them to do, people praise God because of them. Here's three people that, I had a whole list of people, but here's three people that I just wanted to brag on. One is Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right? He's a Presbyterian pastor. I didn't even know that till the... Um, you know, tell the, the documentary came out. And uh, he's just someone who, right, his whole brand was just kindness. He was patient and slow and saw people. He says this, when I say it's you I like, I'm talking about that part of you that knows that life is far more than anything you could ever see or hear or touch. That deep part of you that allows you to stand for those things without which humankind cannot survive. Love that conquers hate, peace that raises, rises triumphant over war, and justice that proves more powerful than greed. Mr. Rogers was incredible because every single person that met him, he saw them. He wasn't rushed. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He sat down and he saw them, and he especially saw little kids which now looking back, like little Gen X kids who were all probably abandoned, right? Like latchkey kids, he like saw them and cared for them. And people love Mr. Rogers. Here's another, other heroes of mine, Millard, uh, Millard and Linda Fuller. Um, they started um, Habitat for Humanity in 1976, right? They're like, hey, we can build homes. There's people without homes. It's too expensive to build homes. What if we gather the church? What if we gather God's people and we build homes for unhoused people? And they've built homes for what, almost 50 years since. It's incredible. In uh, 1,400 cities, over 50 countries, these guys have changed the landscape. I love this, this quote. It says, I see life as both a gift and a responsibility. My responsibility is to use what God has given me to help his people in need. Right, Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers, sorry. He's like, okay, kindness. I'm gonna leverage my gift of kindness. The Fullers, I'm gonna leverage my call of compassion. One of my other heroes is Brian Stevenson. Um, he, uh, if you saw the movie Just Mercy, um, the movie's all about him. I got, I've gotten to see him speak a couple times, and I went to uh, um, his, his institute down in Birmingham, Alabama last year when I went uh, on the Sankofa trip with Danny. And what he has done is incredible. I mean, he, he's a Harvard-trained lawyer, and he intentionally went to Alabama and said, for decades, people have been imprisoned wrongly, 
or their senses were all messed up and were too wrong, and he's been advocating for them and changing people's lives and changing the system one person at a time until there's actually critical mass, and now he's actually changing the culture of Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, Alabama. He is incredible and inspiring, and you should YouTube him and watch every talk he does. It's incredible. But he says this, the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disavowed, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. Well, these guys are heroes. And what's incredible is there's no one that says anything poorly about any of them. They are esteemed by Christians and non-Christians alike because they are a light in the darkness. They are the fragrance of Christ that they walk into every room and they know who they are and they leverage all of who they are. And I wish I was smart enough to be like Brian and I'm not. I wish I could actually swing a hammer and be like the Fullers, and I'm not. I wish I could be kind like Fred Rogers, which I'm not. So therefore, I got to find the work to do, right? Because God actually has called me, he's called you to be his people, to walk into every room fully knowing who we are, to raise the spiritual temperature and give honor and glory to God. I have a couple little bullet points of like, how in the world do we do that? How do we do that? It's very simple and hard, kind of like all Christian things. The first is this, this is not about shame or guilt or I thought you were a good Christian because you're believing blah, blah, blah. No. What's incredible is we live lives transformed by Christ. That's it. So maybe we need more transformation. Maybe we need to step out in faith. This is between you and God. What I do know, what we talk about all the time is that we are connected to the vine. Our number one priority is that we're connected to Christ the Holy Spirit then moves in us, moves through us, transforms us, heals us, empowers us, and sends us. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So not my work, not the person's next to you work, not your spouse's work. It is your work to be connected to the vine. And so my encouragement, Jeff's encouragement, will do it until we blue in the face. Your job is to be connected to the vine and then do the things that God's called you to do. So that's one. Here's the second thing. In, uh, in our discipleship curriculum, you go to our website on the resource page, there's a discipleship curriculum. One of those things is a, uh, is a prayer uh, discipleship curriculum. And there's all these different ways to pray. And one of the ways to pray, which was mind boggling to me the first time I did it, is pray over your calendar. I've never even thought about doing something like that. But did you know, you look at your calendar, every hour of your day on Monday is a, you know, has something. There's something going on. You are in a certain room. You're with a certain person. You're doing something. And so to look at your calendar and say, okay, God, how do I be your woman? How do I be your man in this meeting, in this appointment, in this chunk of data analyzing or whatever you have to do? I don't even know, right? Whatever it is. Like, so we pray, we say, okay, God, this is your schedule. This is your life. This is your meeting that you're going to walk into. So I want to be your woman. I want to be your man. So pray. When prayer just tunes our heart to be ready for the things of God. All right. Um, here's something that's kind of wild, that we should actually be intentional about the rooms that we walk into. Like, did you know that like, if we're just passively walking around, like we're going to find ourselves, some rooms we have to be in, right? You're, you have to have your job. You have to be with your family. Like you got to work those things out and figure out how to be God's person there. But some of those rooms, you don't have to be. Some of those friendship groups, 
you don't have to be a part of those friendship groups. Sometimes like you want to be God's person so bad. And every time you walk into that room, your heart just gets crushed. Your spirit just gets crushed. You just don't have the strength to actually change the temperature in that room. And in fact, you're the one who gets diminished every time you're in that room. So maybe you need to take a break. Maybe you need to take a break from Thanksgiving. That's what we're trying to do, but it's not working out for us. Okay. <laughs> so we'd be intentional about the rooms. And here's what I think this, this second to last one that we need to fan the flames of other Christians for greater impact. If we're gonna live the igloo life all by yourself, that does one thing. There's something crazy when you partner with other Christians, it changes the culture, right? When you and another Christian and your family are intentionally gonna raise the spiritual temperature at Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is different. When you and your group of friends um, are actually gonna like pray about the pre- your preschool that you're all in together, the preschool is gonna change forever. If you and a Christian in your neighborhood are going to pray together, like your neighborhood changes. And so we together need each other to fan the flames. Part of the reasons we come to church is we come to church to encourage each other, to build each other up, to fan the flames so that we're like this warm coal so that we go out and we can like do our part while we're alone doing the other things. And what's so funny, here we are at church. We think we're all church. We're all Christians. We all just show up. But it actually takes work to show up to church and actually raise the spiritual temperature of church. If we're just passive observers, then we just, like, church is great. But we can't just rely on Michael all day to be like, come on, Michael, get me fired up. Like, no, we all bring something. What would it be like if you showed up at church and like, I am going to help raise the spiritual temperature at church? Did you know at church, people actually like to pray with each other sometimes? Like, it's funny. I sit with Christians all the time. We're like, want to pray? And like, Okay, like it's like, even as a pastor, like it's weird, like do we do it? But yet if we actually intentionally pray with each other, talk about spiritual things for each other, check in with each other, fan the flame of each other, then we're good to go. And then here's the very last thing is simply this, to remember that you do set the temperature. We are the light of the world. The darkness cannot overcome it. We are the unchangeable one. We are the light that goes into the darkness that transforms every room we walk into. We bring the grace and mercy and goodness of God everywhere we go. And so my encouragement for you, and really, gosh, for me this whole week I've been wrestling with this, is that we want to be people who are full of personal righteousness and public righteousness so that we can truly be a city on a hill. Because, man, Marin needs to know where the light is, where the grace is, where the hope is, for a very dark and depressing world. Would you stand together? Let me pray for us and over us, and and then we'll spend a little time in worship thanking God for his goodness and being generous as we walk this together. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I am so thankful for your generosity towards us, for your long-suffering for us, for the way that you so patiently walk with us as we try to figure out what it means to be your children. And so we pray, God, that you would have your way with us more and more in us, more and more through us, that we would not just look to you to miraculously be the light somewhere, but that you would recognize that you've called us to be your light, to change the spiritual temperature of every room we walk into. So may we love others deeply. May we love hard people well. May we love our enemies. And may we put our hands and feet to loving the people in our life and the people in our world, specifically and especially the poor, the brokenhearted, the broken down, 
the ones that you see, the ones that you bless, the ones that you advocate for, may we advocate for as well. And may everything we do give you honor and you glory, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. Let's stand together.